Hello, I'm Sam Amon, and this is the 39th episode of The Art of Asymmetrical Warfare. Today we'll be discussing the evolution of the Basmachi from bandits to a pseudo-centralized guerrilla government in the Fergana. it's time for a making history segment. You know the drill. Get your vaccines and your boosters. Help those around you get their vaccine and boosters. As of today, about 900,000 people in the United States died from COVID-19, which means we're losing about 2,000 to 3,000 people a day to COVID-19, and we're seeing 100,000 COVID-19-related hospitalizations a day in the United States. Worldwide, 5.7 million people have died, with the United States leading with the most deaths. Fleas, get vaccinated, keep wearing your masks, practice social distancing. COVID-19 isn't over and it isn't something we have to live with. It's still a very active pandemic and we still need to take active precautions to protect ourselves and our loved ones. A few weeks ago, Manchin, Cinema, and 51 Republicans gave the biggest middle finger to everyone in the United States and voted down amending the filibuster and then killing the voting rights bill in Congress. I hope you took these last few weeks to process that defeat and rest. Things are hard and scary right now, not only because of the rising racist authoritarian right that seems poised to win elections in 2022 and beyond, but because of two long years of COVID-19, plus the deteriorating climate, increased attacks on people of color and LGBTQ plus people, especially trans people, the inability to, to provide for ourselves and our families, and just the slow, never-ending destruction of everything and everyone we know and love. I understand, and I also understand if you need to take a break, or if you need time to grieve, time never really given to us in the United States. We have so much to grieve, and the GOP and their white supremacist supporters are determined to give us even more. I'm not going to pretend to know how this ends. There are hundreds of people smarter than me who are predicting a wide array of different scenarios. Not many of them are good or easy, but if you're like me and you want to know what to do next, here are a few options still open to us. One is a general strike and mass protest that goes on for days. I'm talking about the protests we've seen in Syria, Egypt, Hong Kong, Belarus, Kazakhstan, etc. That means being prepared for a wide array of government responses, as well as supporting people who are punished via losing their jobs, evictions, etc. I don't think it's impossible to organize, but it requires a lot of organization and coordination. The best way to start is talking to your local unions, see who's currently on strike and how you can support them, or even how you and your uh, fellow co-workers could join in. So talk to your local unions and study how protesters in other countries organize their protests. This isn't like a violent protest like the right is trying to do. This is a right that we have as people in the United States to say that enough is enough and we need voting rights. We need, um, you know, build back better deal. All of the different... Uh, stipends and different tax credits that were supposed to help the little people, not the big businesses. We need, you know, our government to take the threat of rising fascism as a serious threat and stop giving money to the police who support the fascists and start investing in our communities, right? If you really want to end poverty and you really want to end crime, punishment and indefinite imprisonment isn't going to do that. It's not going to solve the problem. We have literally decades of data proving that it doesn't solve the problem. So these are things we want the government to take seriously. These are the things that we believe in. And that's what the protest would be about. 
And that's what the general strike is about because there's so many jobs in the United States right now where you're literally risking your life just so you can maybe feed your family, right? You're, you might be facing eviction, but you still need to go to this low paying job because you don't, you can't go anywhere else, right? You don't have that affordable mobility. You don't even have the option to look. And that's what we would be, be protesting for. So the best way, like I said, is to talk to your unions, but also talk to um, local organizations such as Indivisible, Black Lives Matter, Never Again, Stand Up for Racial Justice, NAACP, Planned Parenthood, even the ACLU. Join those bigger organizations that have connections to all the smaller organizations in your area, and you can kind of learn about activism and organizing with big groups and then get involved with your really local groups. The second option is that we increase our organizing efforts on the ground level and run for every local position in the country. I'm not someone who says, just vote blue and all problems will be solved. I'm also not someone who's like, just forget elections, because that makes no sense. What I am saying is that you can do both. You can organize with your old local organizations, you know, figure out what's out there in, your act- in the activist space, figure out how you can help and support local activists and people who are struggling, and how you can show up to, to um, prove to you know Nazis and fascists that they're not welcome in your communities. And then you can also run for election or help campaign for candidates. Right now, the ground level, the local level, is where we have to win. The federal option to save voting rights is dead right now, which means it's up to the not only the states, but to the cities and towns, the counties and districts, and every individual in the United States to fight for voting rights. The Republicans know this, which is why they're stonewalling us on the federal level and flooding local positions with dangerous, racist, authoritarians and fascists cut from the same mold as that person, Marjorie Taylor. Right now, if our democracy has any hope of surviving, it must be fought for on all fronts, and that means we need to care. We need people to care about electoral judges, state secretaries, school board members, etc. All those boring positions that you think mean nothing are now the most important positions in this fight. Because elections in Florida, Wisconsin, Georgia, etc. could very well depend on a single election judge who decides to uphold democracy. Some organizations that will help you volunteer candidates or run for yourself are Run for Something, which is a great organization that literally takes you from like, I think I want to run, to planning a campaign. Um, The Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee, they help um, you know, Democratic candidates want run for positions. The Democratic Association of Secretaries of State, that is a group that focuses specifically on Secretary of State positions in the country. And then talk to your indivisible groups. You know, when it was uh, the 2020 election, I was part of an indivisible group. And like every day we were calling people, we were texting people, we were mailing campaign flyers and postcards. And when you know, before COVID during the, was it 2018 election, we were going door to door campaigning for people. Indivisible did that. And so if you really want to involve, Indivisible is a great group to do that with. I'm also going to provide a link to all of these organizations, but also a link to this great article called Want to Win the White House, which explains exactly why local politics and local positions have become so important. Finally, we need to speak to our white communities. Historically, communities of color, not white people, are the strongest defenders of democracy in the United States. During the last few elections, white people have voted for the racist, authoritarian fascists. 55% of white people voted for Trump in 2020, and 54% of white people voted for him in 2016. 58% of white people voted for Bush in 2004, and 55% of white people voted for him in the two, in 2000. If white people voted for democracy, the races of this country would be in big trouble. But right now, they don't, and so the GOP does this stuff because it knows it'll do away with it. 
I don't know about you, but I don't want the GOP to hear knowing that my community is going to vote for them no matter how racist they are or how authoritarian they are. Surge, which is Stand Up for Racial Justice, has some great resources on how to talk to white communities about their inherent racism, which we'll include a, a link to in the description. I'd also recommend the books. So you want to talk about race by Ijeoma Olulu, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi, and White Fragility by Robin J. D'Angelo. And now it's time to talk about the Basmachi and the Ferdana. The Basmachi, who are often thought of as the great woodymen of Turkestan, spend most of 1918 and 1919 organizing themselves, mostly in the Ferdana, but there were a few units in the Kiva and Bukharan Emirates as well. Basmachi originated in the aftermath of the 1916 Central Asian Revolt, but don't really form the concept of the Basmachi as we know it today until the fall of Kokan in 1918. By the end of 1918, there were 40-plus self-organized Basmachi units with three men emerging as effective enough leaders to unite the different groups. Erdush of Kirtan, Kokan, Madamin Bey, whose family originated from Kokan royalty, and Ibrahim Bek, who was organizing in Bukhara and was loyal to the Bukhara Namir. For this episode, we'll focus on Erdush and Madamin in the Ferdana and save Ibrahim's story for the greater story of the Bukharan Emirate and the Red Army. Ergush, who was the chief of Kokan's militia, and Madamin both fled to the Ferdana after the fall of the Kokan autonomy and organized different branches of the Basmachi. Ergush led the first attack against the Russians, and by the end of 1918, he had raised an estimated 4,000 fighters. Madamin Bey enjoyed the support of the Ulama merchants and moderate members of the Basmachi and the Ferdana Valley. By the end of 1918, both men had built minor fiefdoms for themselves, and it was clear that either they learned how to work together or risk destroying their own movement by fighting with each other. Part 1. The Situation in Turkestan in 1919 In 1919, the Basmachi were faced with three main problems, famine, the Bolshevik forces, and the Jadids, and competition amongst each other. As we've talked about in previous episodes, the Russian Civil War disrupted Turkestan's food supplies, plunging the region into mass starvation, while the Russians used armed groups to forcibly requisition food from the poor indigenous and Russian farmers. According to Jeff Sahedo, an estimated 30% of the Ferdana population died in the famine, which is one of the reasons why it became a Basmachi stronghold. The more the Russians stole from the people, the more they fled into the Basmachi's ranks. Some of these new recruits inc- included Bashkir, Tatar, and Jadid reformers, as well as ulama and conservative merchants. To try and counter this, the Russians switched the focus of their requisition efforts from the indigenous peasants to the Russian peasants while waiting for Red Army reinforcements. For their part, the Basmachi focused on raiding military supply depots, burning warehouses and ginning factories, as well as attacking, mi- attacking mines and oil wells. While the Russians tried to enforce mass arrests, they could never penetrate the Basmachi's territory in the Ferdana. Instead, their efforts seemed to only help the Basmachi recruitment efforts. Yet while the Basmachi and Russians were enemies, that didn't prevent local units from making agreements with each other, and it seems like deals were frequently made and broken. For example, during the winter, when food was scarcer than it already was, the Basmachi would reach out to local Russian garrisons to share food and supplies. Once winter was over, though, the Basmachi would resume attacking Russian units. While the, Basmachis raid- While the Basmachi raided and fought with the Russians, their true enemies were the Jadids and other Muslim reformers. Given the Basmachi's conservatism and belief in traditional Islam, they thought the Jadids were the greatest enemies of Turkestan. Ibrahim Bek, the leader of Bukharan Basmachi, 
once wrote to Red Army Commander, quote, Comrades, we thank you for fighting with the Jadids. I, Ibrahim Beck, praise you for this and shake your hand as friend and comrade and open to you the path to all four sides. I'm also able to give you forage. We have nothing against you. We will beat the Jadids who overthrew our power. Quote is from Dr. Deep Talid's book, Making Uzbekistan. Ibrahim's hatred of the Jadids seemed to match the Amir's own view. One of his officials once wrote, Erdushbek of Kokan and Muhammad Amin of Marjelan, with their courage and fortitude, have for some time been exposing and killing Jadids and Bolsheviks. Despite the Basmachi's antagonism to all indigenous people who threaten traditionalism and conservatism, Turar Riskolov, the leader of the Musboro, actually reached out to Madamin Bey to negotiate an uneasy peace so they could address the raging famine. Madamin was open to negotiations, and in the end, they agreed that Madamin's forces would keep their arms and organization, but would become local units of the Red Army. The local Russians allowed this into, until General Mikhail Ferenza arrived and broke the agreement, killed Madamin, and focused on breaking the Basmachi as an alternative form of government in the Ferdana. Finally, the Basmachi, who were really modern-day warlords, realized they needed to organize their forces and split up their territories before they ended up fighting with each other. Part 2. How does one organize a guerrilla force? The Bosmachi were neither coordinated nor centralized, and as more and more groups popped up and more and more people joined their ranks, Urgush and Madamin realized they needed to get properly organized. So in March 1919, Urgush called a meeting of 40 Bosmachi leaders to talk about unified command. By the end of the meeting, Urgush was nominated as the supreme commander with two deputies, Kershimat, a well-known ally of Urgush, and Madamin. Each of the 40 leaders present received control over a separate territory to protect and administer with support from the ulama as their religious political advisors. This structure lasted until the summer of 1919, when Madamin went his own way. At some point in 1919, Madamin met the Russian commander, Konstantin Monstrov, commander of the Russian People Army in Turkestan. He was just one of the many armed organizations in the region at the time. They united their forces, Madamin's guerrilla unit transformed into the Muslim People's Army, and together they created the Ferdana Provisional Government, which would outlive both of its founders by a few months. Madamin and Monstrov created a constituent assembly and drew up an eight-point platform to ensure freedom of speech, press, and education for the people. They called for an elected assembly and a five-member cabinet, although it's doubtful if they ever held elections. Like the Tokan government, it failed to execute any meaningful policy, but gained political recognition and aid from abroad. This would lead the Soviets to claim that their government was an evil British plot to take Turkestan away from the Russians. While it seems that the British were aware of Madamin and his work, sent him financial support, and even sent agents to negotiate with him, it's doubtful they masterminded the creation of the Ferdana Provisional Government. The Soviets would make similar claims about the Turkestan military organization, a unit consisting of former Tsarist officials and generals. You can learn more about them and the Soviets' claims by joining our Patreon and gaining access to our exclusive episode in Osipov's Uprising. Monstrov and Madamin knew they would not survive long if they did not defeat the Bolshevik forces in the region. Together, they took the city of Osh in September 1919 and were involved in the siege of Andazan, where they encountered Frunz's Red Forces. He pushed them to modern-day Kyrgyzstan Xinjiang border. Friends captured and executed Monstrov in January 1920, and Madamin surrendered his forces and formally joined the Bolsheviks in March 1920. He would later die that summer. By the end of 1919, the Basmachi of the Ferdana attempted to organize their forces to improve their effectiveness. 
They recruited 20,000 fighters, organized a provisional government with a Russian army, also aligned against the Bolsheviks, and were impeding the Bolsheviks' efforts to gather supplies and establish their hold on the Ferdana. Even though Madamin would die in 1920, he left behind an organized guerrilla force under the command of men like Ergush, Ibrahim Bek, and others, who would prove not only to be a thorn in the side of Ferenz and the Red Army, but also entice a certain former Ottoman general to join their cause and attempt to regain, quote-unquote, lost glory. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can listen to our full catalog on our website, www.samswarroom.com, as well as on iTunes. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to support all further all future episodes, please join our Patreon. We have several awesome perks, and your support allows us to continue producing great content while also branching out to other mediums and conflicts. So please support us by joining our Patreon link in the description. Until next time, get vaccinated or your booster, wear a mask, practice social distancing, and stay safe.